Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 21, episode 21 of Shut Up and Wrestle. And this week, my special guest is my longtime friend and former colleague, Mike Fazioli, who was the managing editor of Raw Magazine from 1999 to 2003 and of WWE Magazine from 2001 to 2003. So uh, we will talk about him in just a second and lead to that great conversation. But before we do, I wanted to mention a couple of important things. One, I've been mentioning it on social media, but I'm very excited and proud of it. It was an interview that I did last week with my Uh, Well, another one of my old friends um, in the business, Mike Johnson of PW Insider. Uh, Mike and I go back to the early days of the Manhattan Center Monday Night Raws and lots of other uh, 90s indie wrestling in the New York area. And he had me on uh, PW uh, PW Insider Elite to uh, talk for, God, a couple of hours. We talked about, uh, of course, Blood and Fire, my biography of the original Sheik. And we talked about um, uh, those early raw days. We talked about the importance of the Sheik to the business. And, you know, we, we and we also talked about uh, outside the box stuff like Godzilla, because, of course, I'm also the author of the book Godzilla FAQ. So if you have an elite subscription or membership on PW Insider, um, I encourage you to go check it out and take a listen. It was a lot of fun and I hope you enjoy it. And I'm also excited to announce that coming very soon, um, I don't think it'll be out yet by the time you hear this, but I am also going to be talking to Dave Meltzer on Wrestling Observer Live. We're going to be talking again about Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. I was asked by Mr. Meltzer to be on the show, and I'm psyched to do it, and it should be available soon. I'll be keeping everybody updated when it is out there and ready to be listened to. Uh, Staying on the topic of the book for just a moment, want to remind everybody, especially if you are in the Connecticut area or the New York tri-state area, I am going to be at the Milford Barnes & Noble in Milford, Connecticut on Friday, July 8th from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. I'm going to be doing a book signing and a book talk. So again, if you're in the area and you want to come down and say hi and maybe buy a book, you are more than welcome to come down. And of course, the, the signed autographed copies of the book, I'm still selling online. If people are interested, I have a handful of those left. If you want to buy an autographed copy of Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original chic, reach out to me via email at Solomon at yahoo.com or on my Twitter uh, handle, which is Solomon. But enough about me. 
Let's get to my good friend, Mike, or as we used to call him back in the day, Faz. Now, you are in for a treat because you are about to hear some real inside, behind-the-scenes stories of what it was like to work in the WWE Publications Department back in the early 2000s. And, and, and Faz has been through a lot of the things that I went through as well. So if you enjoy my stories about that stuff, you're going to enjoy his stories as well. So um, I hope you enjoy this next conversation that I did with another former Titan Tower employee. I know these are very popular, these conversations. So I'm going to take you to this one right now. Okay, so it is my distinct pleasure this week to uh, uh, do something that has been important to me with this podcast from the very beginning. And for those of you that enjoyed the Deborah Jasway episode, you know that something that I've wanted to do is bring more um, former WWE Titan Tower employees on the show, people that I've worked with, people that have great stories that you may not have ever heard before and unique insights and just one of a kind uh, memories and experiences. So this is part of that. And it's my pleasure to bring on somebody who used to have the unfortunate role of being my, my editor once upon a time. And uh, for, for, I want to say four years, I guess, from about 1999 to 2003, he was the managing editor of Raw Magazine and then later also WWE Magazine as well which we'll talk about. And I will say that from, uh, I worked there for a few years after him and I'm not just saying it because he's here, but from the minute he left in 2003 is when the job started to gradually become less fun. He is one of the Aww. most fun. Yes, it's true. One of the most fun and funny people that I've ever had the pleasure to work with or for, and it is Mike Fazioli. Welcome to the podcast Faz. Brian Besal, how are you, my friend? It has, been much, it has been far too long. I know. It's it's great talking to you, and I'm looking at you here, even though they can't see us looking at each other. It's great to They're see you. They're not missing you. anything. It's been years. Um, this is, like I was saying before, this is like uh, a unique thing that I like to do on Shut Up and Wrestle that that no one else is doing, which is uh, talking to, to people like us, people like me, people that, you know, have been through the the trenches and and people may not even know about us and and sometimes we have the best story so did i get the i got those dates right right 99 to you did yep you did i started in i remember it was right after thanksgiving in 99 and i left about june july of 03 right and let me tell you something your going away party that we had at temple bar in stamford <sighs> Oh my, it yes. Is probably the most memorable farewell party. And I've been to many from Titan Tower of anybody. Just the, the laughs that we had on. I will never forget as long as I live, just sitting outside and listening to you do your Lord Alfred Hayes impressions and everything else <laughs> into the wee hours. You know, the only ones that were better, it was a, it was a great party. You guys threw me a wonderful party. The ones that were better were like the Irish wakes we had after the layoffs. Oh, and I God. remember we had that one, it was like a, a two day, just like a, a slaughter, an absolute culling of people. You remember we, we were, we were told to sit in our offices by not leave your office. And like, if your phone rings and it's HR, well, guess what? They're going to bring you down there and you're going to get your spiel and your paperwork. And while you're in the in HR, 
uh, you know, Vito from facilities is going to come in and grab all your stuff and your laptop and walk you to your car. And we sat there for two days, you know, like, like, like we were calves seeing which one was going to go through the shoot and get dropped next. But then we had, you know, we had, and it wasn't the temple bars, the other bar down toward the, down the, at the end of the road toward the beach. I forget the name. Oh, of it. Jimmy Seaside. Yes. Jimmy Seaside. And we went there and we just had, you know, it was people who got, got let go and people who survived and we just had a great time and i remember we came like coming in the next morning it felt like my head was about 20 feet wide just it was <laughs> very very thick and coming in and sitting down and turning on my laptop you know letting it come up and then just like hearing down the hall like these noises of people going oh ah, what because we got there and the first email everyone anyone opened, and this is before you could check your email on your phone sitting at the bar. Right. The first email anyone got was the one from Linda McMahon saying that Stu Snyder got whacked. Right. And that's when the celebration started. <laughs> that's right. So Stu Snyder, for those that don't know, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of people that followed this, but he was at that time the president, right? Of the, the was that his title, president? C- or I think he was, was he C- C- CEO. Right. Linda was yeah. the president. He was yes. the CEO. Yes. Right. Yeah. So so for people that don't know, and, and I'm sure people that follow the businesses and listen to this show, they'll see from time to time these huge bloodlettings that happen with WWE, mm-hmm. you know, where they'll fire a ton of talent and that always gets the press. But every time sure. they do that, they're firing also corporate employees. And right. we had some days like you were mentioning. I think that the time you're talking about, which was that and I remember that where they told you not to leave your desk. It was right after all the losses came out over a combination of the XFL yes. and, and the restaurant in Times Square. And the record label. Right. And they lost something like $40 million, I think. Or yeah, like in a quarter. It was something. In a quarter. And from what I understand, what the department heads were told was they weren't told who to fire or who, what to do. They were just told. Here's the amount of money that you need to yeah. take off of your ledgers, off your overhead, yes. figure, figure it out, you know, and so, right, right. So people were literally you were sitting at your desk waiting for them to call you on the loudspeaker or call your phone or something. They called your phone. Right, right. We, we both survived. Yep. We did. We, we were there at such an odd time because either right before or right, I think it was right before I started was when they went public. Yes. You know, I, I, the day that I came in for my first job interview and it was October 99, it mm-hmm. was the actual day that they went public. So I think if you started at Thanksgiving, you, you must've started like just a few weeks after that happened after. Yes. It, yeah, it was. I didn't miss it by much. Cause I remember some people who were still, who were there beforehand had options. I, I never, I never had options. Um, but, um, they had gone public and that's when you got the XFL. That's when you got the restaurant. That's when you got the record label. I think there was some very early incarnation of movie making. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's also when they brought in, I mean, just this incredibly dense, huge layer of senior vice presidents. Yes. It got very, very, it got more corporate than. Oh, so top heavy. Yes. And then when they did the first layoff, not the one that there was a previous one, instead of getting rid of them, they got they hit the rank and file. And then they realized they were left with the structure where you had a lot of SVPs 
who had no idea what the hell they were doing and no one to do it for them anymore. Right. So that's when they had to go back in and take care of the Stu Snyders of the world. And he was the guy, Stu Snyder was the guy that masterminded the sale of WCW to, to WWF at the time, because he, I guess, I think he had previously worked in the Turner organization. He had an in. Yeah. He, he was like a mole or something. And he, and he orchestrated that whole thing. And they were like, thank you very much. And now here's the door, you know, you have to think maybe that's why they hired him in the first place. Cause I know in some previous corporate life, he ran ringling brothers and bankrupted them. It's like, they've been having circuses for 4,000 years and you're the guy who bankrupts them. Do you remember the story about how Stu refused to get into a white limousine? Did you ever hear that? They sent no. a, they sent a limb. Well, I, I mean, I wasn't there firsthand, but story I heard is they sent a limo to pick him up and it was a white limo, which he found to be very gauche and low class and beneath <laughs> his expectations. It had to be a black limo and he refused to get into the white limo. I don't know if that's true or not, but I like to think that it is. I The one I heard about him was that at the airport with one of our former compadres, they were coming off the road somewhere and he's. Our, 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 our co-worker saw Stu standing there waiting for a car and he went up and decided to say hello to him and introduce himself and he did and he said Stu looked at him like you know it, with just this look of confusion and then handed him a little yellow Tower Records bag remember those that had yes. like three CDs in it and our friend was like uh wait and then he figured it out he's like wait a minute I'm not your driver <laughs> I, I, I work in the publications department and to which Stu just said Oh, and took the bag back and got in his car. <laughs> Obviously, a, a man of privilege, I guess he had to be. But these are the kind of yeah. stooges that they were bringing in back then to kind of. Yes, they were adding, as Willie Chichi would say, they were adding a lot of buffers. There are a lot the, of buffers into the operation. It was no longer it was it was moving away from that real mom and pop where basically Vince and Linda knew all the employees and that kind of thing that you would hear mm -hmm. about was the way that it used to be, you know, from the right. people that had been there, but now forget it. I mean, it's so far beyond even what we knew when we were there. It's like, you know, light years uh, yeah, I mean, beyond it. I, I can't even imagine now because we're talking 20 years. So you came in and if I have my timeline, right, because this is also when they were looking to hire people like me too, you came in, I guess, in the wake of, Vince Russo leaving to go to WCW, right? Because he had also Correct. still been running the magazines on top yes. of everything else. Yeah, Vin Russo and I never overlapped, which right. was a point I had to make pretty clear with some of the talent more than once. It's like, no, I don't know him. <laughs> I, I didn't. When they say you would say, you know, I, I'm from publications, I'm from Raw Magazine, and they would immediately give you the stink eye, thinking you're, oh. you know, a Russo guy. It's like, oh no, 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 I, I didn't know. I've never met him. So you're saying that he built a lot of really great, healthy relationships with the talent. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it, <laughs> at least it seemed that way. Like I said, I wasn't I was not there for the, you know, the Russo era. But I want to say, you know, uh, and I think I've, I've said this on here before when I talk about and even on other interviews I've done where I talk about my time working on the magazine. Mm -hmm. um, what I was actually very proud of of what Raw Magazine became in the time that you took it over. I have to say, and I'm glad you're here. I could say it to your face, but you know, I loved raw magazine when they first introduced it in 96, when Russo was doing it just because it was so different and it was edgy, but it was yeah, yeah. also, it was sloppy and unprofessional and it was a little overly 
it was kind of tacky. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of you know. I right. mean, you know, like I always remember the Sable forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> right, but well, you know what it was. It clearly was one man's vision. It was it was yes. his thing. When you came in and and you know um, and Barry took over and everything, it it started to become. And of course, this was a very conscious decision. It really became more mature and kind yeah. of like it was aimed at an older fan, but not in like a prurient kind of way. But it was aimed at a, no. a, a an older fan that was interested in reading about the lifestyles of the talent and Mm -hmm. and and some of the backstories of wrestling it was very professional and i have to say for people who don't remember it if you look up that particular window of time i want to say raw magazine from 2000 through 2003 even a little bit into 04 before they turned Mm -hmm. it into just a kayfabe magazine that was a copy of wwf magazine that they did they did you never knew that oh i'll tell you that no i never knew that yeah so that year of raw magazine was just a a fantastic wrestling magazine so what happened after you left i can't believe you never knew this all these years later what happened what happened after you left because you had at that time uh wwe magazine and Mm -hmm. raw magazine because laura bryson had left so After you left, and I'm not, I don't think it was related to this, but it just so happened that somebody somewhere got it into their heads. You know, they were doing the brand extension, right? You had Raw and SmackDown, two separate brands. So they yes. took a look, they took a look at Raw magazine and Smack and, and, and WWF magazine, and they were like, okay, why do we have a Raw magazine and we don't have a SmackDown magazine? And oh. you know, th- these people were buffoons, and we were trying to explain to them, look. It's not really like that. That these magazines predate the brand extension. So we have WWE magazine, which is the storyline kayfabe magazine. Sure. We, yeah. we have Raw magazine, which is more of like the work shoot kind of serious magazine for kind of yeah. an older fan. They didn't want to hear it. So so what they wanted to do instead was what they wound up doing is Raw magazine became dedicated strictly to the brand of Raw with the Raw mm-hmm. talent. WWE magazine got turned into SmackDown magazine. Oh God. And both magazines dealt with only the talent on their respective show. And they were 100% kayfabe WWE magazine style. So they killed it. They really, they killed what raw magazine had become. And maybe there are people listening to this that love that era, but we were really heartbroken. We fought really hard, but we lost. Unfortunately, I had no idea. Yeah. It became a casualty of the brand extension. And I remember Aaron, you know, Aaron, Aaron Williams slash Feigenbaum, yes. our mm-hmm. illustrious uh, colleague. He took over when you left. Um, mm-hmm. I got WWE magazine to run. Right. Which became SmackDown in like two months. And right. he, Aaron got Raw magazine. And I remember Aaron, too, was very who I'd love to get on here at some point. I can coax him out of his solitude. But Aaron was really crestfallen and understandably that they were you know turning this magazine into kind of a joke and i remember like when we had a cover that had kane on the cover in like full gimmick that and and then eugene do you remember eugene i do remember eugene in full gimmick you know as sort of like this mentally challenged wrestler we thought Mm -hmm. okay this really is the death of raw magazine and before our eyes it was very sad to watch that happen. And the funny thing is, I, I have to think one of the problems you guys had was, I mean, and you remember this, was when we would talk to the talent and, you know, and we had to do the kayfabe story. 
they didn't like doing those because, you know, you read catch right. these guys, whether it's a catering or, you know, talent relations hooked us up with a phone call. And then you're asking them to get into a, a character mindset. And, you know, they don't they, they want to just be able to turn it off where we had much more success, I think, doing the interviews for Raw, where they could just sort of wing it. Yeah. And, and you know what I found, too, with the kayfabe interviews? Um, there's something to be said for the genius of how they did it in the 80s and early 90s, where they were just making up the interviews completely. They made them up as they went along. And from what I understand, well, the writers made them up. I mean, they yes, were just, exactly. you could ask Keith about that, Keith Greenberg. But yeah. my understanding was that Barry Werner, who was our publisher during that mm-hmm. era, you know, he came from that newspaper background. He came from yeah. the Daily News. And I think he was always maybe a, a little bit uncomfortable with the kind of pure fabrication of pro wrestling. And and from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that he wanted us to move more in the direction of getting the talent more involved, even in the kayfabe interviews and not just making them up from scratch out of our heads. That might have come from the top. Mm. And then that might have come from the top because maybe there were times where you know, because you also had the lag time between the time we'd go to press, or, you know, do an interview and then go to press and then hit newsstands. I think our lag was about six weeks. Yeah, so that was brutal, brutal. And, you know, and back then storylines were cha- were just pivoting just madly. You could just, they would change on a dime and more than once we'd go out there and, you know, have our ass sticking out in the wind because something we'd written was now completely wrong. Right. Because yeah, remember, Barry went to the, like the, the meetings with, the with the tv creative people and he'd come back and like okay these are the talking points we should be hitting for ww magazine but then sometimes we would hit them and they would have changed them by the time we were on press yeah and and you know with those kayfabe interviews when we were actually talking to the talent and doing it what i also found a lot of the time is sometimes they almost seemed to prefer that we just make it up because there were times where they didn't really make it up they didn't know how to answer the questions. I mean, no. sometimes they, because in, in, in some cases, their personas were just the creation of the company. So it's like yes. they weren't even, they didn't even know who their character was. Uh, I mean, no. I remember it's unfortunate because of who it was, but I remember specifically Eddie Guerrero. Eddie Guerrero, but I was going to say Chris Benoit. I remember. Oh, okay. I, one, one of my earliest interviews I had to do in that style was with Benoit. And he was so uncomfortable doing yes. it. And he was so um, pained. Like, like he, yeah. he, he just kept trying to answer in character. And I was embarrassed having to force him to do this. And he was... did finally, he said to me, just write it out, make it up, show it to me. And I'll let you know if I'm okay with it. And that's what I wound up doing. Yeah. I mean, those were the most uncomfortable encounters ever. And I'd had a, I'd had a ton of them. They just, these guys didn't, they didn't want to do it. And I didn't want to put them through it. It was just, it was so painful. And I brought up Eddie because I mean, Eddie didn't have, Eddie went, didn't go through the whole bit where, you know, you had the pained attempt. Eddie just said, and just, you, you, he's like, you know, the show, you, you watch the show, you write it up and send it to me and I'll let you know if it's good. I mean, the interview with Eddie was over in five seconds, but then I did the interview with Eddie for Raw magazine. And oh, my God, the guy, I had the guy for two hours. He was the, the right. nicest human being ever. He and he was so upfront with everything he had gone through with the car accident, the substance issues and everything. Yeah, he was, he was and- so forthcoming. He's such a sweet guy. 
I remember with that whole character thing with him, I remember um, we did a cover story. You might have been gone by this point uh, where we did we, we did a photo shoot and cover story at a kind of a nightclub in Stanford where we had all these models with him. I think that might have been after you left. I think it's after me. I think it was a it was a raw magazine cover, maybe, but it was after you left. And, you know, I had I did the interview with him and we sat down in between shots and things when they were just like getting things ready. And he's, Mm -hmm. and he was laughing because he kept saying to me, I am nothing like what they have me do on TV. He's, he's like the low riders, you know, talking like I'm Cheech Marin or something. He he (laughs) goes, he said, I'm nothing like that. The women, he said, my wife, who's Vicky. I didn't even really yeah, yeah. know her at the time. She later became like a TV star, but he said, my wife just laughs her ass off when she sees me on TV, because I am the complete opposite in real life. And he's looking around, they have these models, you know, and he just yeah. couldn't, he couldn't believe it. He just thought it was so insane and ridiculous that it's, you know, cause he wasn't like that at all. Yeah. And, and but he, it was, it was good that he said, you know, you, you just, you know what it is. You just write it. And, I'll let you know if it's okay. Yeah. And because those KKB interviews could be so, so painful. I know. But like you said, with Raw, it was a different story. And I remember one of the one of the the greatest things I think that you ever did when you were there personally was when they had you do the big Austin interview when Austin oh walked away. When Austin quote unquote took his ball and went home. Yeah. And he was gone for what, like a long time, like six months. He was gone or a while. Yeah. And then they finally ironed it out. And JR went went down there and, you know, did the whole like, you know, kind of patching things up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you you did that kind of like come to Jesus interview that he gave in Raw Magazine. Oh, I love that. That was so great. And I remember, I mean, there was a lot of pressure on it, too, because, you know, Austin was just going to let it fly. You know, he's not editing himself at all, even though he's back in the company. Right. I mean, he had a lot of stuff to say. And uh, this is when we were working for Shane. And Shane said, you know, the minute, you know, the minute you're back in the office, I want to, I want to see it because it has to go upstairs. It has to get vetted. And so I remember transcribing that damn thing on the plane back from San Antonio. And I stayed up, I typed the whole thing out and went through it. And I just, I just handed it off. I didn't even email it. I mean, I printed the thing out and handed it off. Old school. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And he went through it and came back and, you know, and to their credit, there were very few edits made. They took out very, very, very little of it. I remember if I remember correctly, this is a long time ago now, but I think you were, you were a little nervous that they were going to just cut it to ribbons and it would be I was. like, like totally neutered. I was, I was nervous. They were going to cut it to ribbons and neuter it or just come out of stuff, you know, come up with stuff out of, you know, full cloth cold cloth or whatever you call that right just completely make up stuff and put it in and then one it would suck and two austin would want to would kill me right right because he you know one thing about him that i always remember is that he really respected the magazines like he he would say to me and and i mean i don't know how to take this but uh, he would say to me that he would he read wwf magazine way more than he read the wrestling observer and things like that because yeah you know, he was so sick of the dirt sheets and things that they would say, which is ridiculous when you think about it, because he's like one of the 
greatest box office attractions in history. Like what mm-hmm. possible negatives could they have to say about him? But obviously I guess they were, he said, he, he the only stuff he liked to read was the company publications. And he was so intimately involved in his character and like his merchandise, even like, I remember he, and he would call us like, well, I mean, remember he, he ripped one of our compadres to bits for one of those kayfabe stories, which mm-hmm. he, he mm-hmm. didn't come up with on his own. Even he wrote the damn thing under, you know, he was given talking points to write to. And then Austin called him up and just tore his ass up for a while. Yeah. But Steve would call, Steve would call. I mean, he called me one time. I remember I was leaving the office. I was, I had just come out of the elevator and I was going to the parking garage to leave. It was like six o'clock. And the, the reception desk, the person at the reception desk is like waving to me. She's like, Steve Austin's on the phone with you, on the phone wants to talk to you. And I'm like, oh God. And I'm thinking I'm going to get slaughtered here. Because it was when he, it was right when he came back as a heel. It was mm-hmm. right when after he had turned heel. And I wrote a whole big kayfabe story about, you know, DTA was now don't trust Austin. And I went back upstairs and I sat by my phone. And that was even scarier than waiting to see whether or not I was laid off. Because I'm expecting to pick up the phone and just get my ass completely chewed out. And I pick it up and it's, it's Austin. And he was so over the top with how much he loved it. Wow. And he, I mean, he was just going on and on about how you fucking get it. The writers don't fucking get it, but this is the way it should be. And then it was like, hey, transfer me to merch. Might have been to Debbie, to Debbie D, who, and to be like, you know, I want to take a quote out of that story and put it on a new shirt. Wow. Unfortunately, that quote was like twelve words long. It's like, man, that's better be a big shirt. <laughs> Was that the cover where it was like the three-headed Austin? The three-headed Austin, which okay. was, a, was a pay-per-view. Right. It was, it was Right. It was a pay-per-view poster. I think it might have been Brian Adams in I'm trying to think of the guy in Creative Services that made it. Because I like to give him credit. Was it Eli? No. Well, maybe it was. I gotta, yeah, maybe it was. I'm not sure, but it, it was wound a great up- cover. It's a great poster. Yeah, it wound up being a very memorable poster and a memorable cover for the magazine. I'm sure people that listen to this are going to like remind me of what exact month and issue it was and everything. Uh, I, I could go into my basement and look for it for about eight hours. Do you but have he, them? Because I have copies of every issue that I ever worked on. Every one. I, I don't have every one. I saved a bunch of them. I still have a bunch of them. I haven't seen them in probably 15 years. I've, you know, I've moved a few times and they're in the same box as they were probably in when I left the tower. So I wanted, and I wanted to talk because we used to talk a lot when we worked there and I've said it on here before about how our department was full of people that were real fans. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying everybody was, but if you went like per capita of every department, we were up there. I mean, in terms of the percentage of people that were actually, people that enjoyed wrestling and watched it before they worked there. Um, we would have won wrestling trivial pursuit against any department in that, in that building. Yeah. Because the, hands down you had a, 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 it must've been a similar thing. I mean, I can't, you know, speak to your experience, but I know like for me, the, the idea of getting the job was just like a hoot, like, Oh my God, wow. This is something I've been a fan of since I was a kid. This is going to be fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I was, I couldn't believe it. Like, I can't believe I'm actually going to be working there because I started watching. I mean, oh, boy. I mean, I, I grew up in the Northeast, so it was WWF. I was watching. So it was it was Backland and Superstar Graham and High Chief Peter Maivia, Andre, of course. It was that era. 
and it was the the house shows from was it Allentown or Easton they were in I forget they did they would do TV and one in Allentown and one in Hamburg Hamburg right so it was the Pennsylvania house shows and then the live cards from either MSG or Boston Garden and that was my TV growing up I mean I'm I've got a million older siblings and one of my older brothers was really into it too. And he got me watching that by the time I was like five or six. So I went way back. And you're, you're a few years older than me. So you're talking about yeah. like mid seventies. then. At yes. That point, right. Yep. Yeah. I'm trying to think of what, like one of the first things I would remember would be of watching on TV for wrestling. And it was probably the angle they did where they turned Peter my via heel. He was oh, working yes. a tag match with Backlund. And he turned on Backlund and he ended up kicking the shit out of Arnie Skolan. Right. And he went with Blassie, right? And Blassie. he went with Blassie and the Wild. Wait, was it Blassie or Albano? Because I think he went with the Wild Samoans. Oh, maybe you're no, right. No, you're I... right. He went, with, he went with Blassie and I think he teamed him up with, um. oh gosh, Spiros Arian. Right. He, Blassie had that stable of heels who had used to be faces and they all turned. So it was like Arian... Yep. Uh, uh, my via and um, and like Victor Rivera, all these guys yep. that used to be good guys, which back then they didn't flip back and forth every week. You know, it wasn't like, you know what they because do. Because Blassie was the mastermind and he could turn right. these guys. Right. That was <laughs> and he was psychology. the wealthy one and he was the he was the wealthy one and he was the mastermind. So he could turn them with either his money or his intellect or both. Now, people people have to remember that if you were watching back then and even i wasn't watching back then but just watching old footage and stuff the three managers the trinity right so you had blassie albano grand wizard Mm -hmm. and they all had like their specialties so like blassie had the turncoats and like he would have the wouldn't he he would usually have like the foreign guys too right yes yeah he would bring in the foreign guys he had nikolai volkov before Volkov came in the team with the Sheik. And then, of course, he had the Iron Sheik and Volkov. And Albano, of course, all the tag teams. Everybody tag always teams. knows like he was the tag team guy. I mean, not strictly, but that was his specialty. Mm-hmm. And Grand Wizard, I guess, I always felt like they gave him the most, I want to say, like colorful heels. Like the guys that almost didn't even really need a manager. Like, did Superstar Billy Graham really need somebody to talk for him? You know what I no. mean? No, he didn't which I always thought was very strange because a lot of times you give a guy a manager because he can't talk. Right. I mean, don't get me wrong. They're amazing together. They were just like magical, uh, but it mm-hmm. was, he didn't really need him, but it was, no. you know, I'm glad they put him together. I, um, the wizard had a uh, Morocco at one point. Morocco was a great talker. Right. The, that's that's what I mean. He, talker. he would get those really histrionic heels. My understanding yeah. was, cause you know, he died right before, they did their national expansion right before yeah. they signed Hogan. Mm-hmm. So he initially was supposed to be a part of all that. And from what I understand, uh, they were going to put him with Orndorff, which if you can only imagine. Oh, man. In the Hulkamania era to have the Grand Wizard managing Paul Orndorff. I think basically Bobby Heenan wound up getting the spot that the Grand Wizard would have had if he'd stayed alive. I think that's kind of what yeah. happened. I, I can see that. Right. I mean, they only had Piper managing for a brief while because he would, I don't think he could work in the ring yet. 
Right. When he first started, he was he was basically Bob Orton's manager or just a manager. Yep. David Schultz, Orton, and then David later Schultz, Paul Orndorff. Right. Yep. Because I guess he was hurt or something, or he had some issue. He was, yeah. I mean, I don't know if like I don't know if it was K or not. The story was always that it came out of the dog collar match with with Greg Valentine. He sold, let me tell you, he sold that ear injury forever for the rest of his life. And I actually think that it was a work i just think he he sold it for his whole life that he had lost hearing you know from that match or from a previous incident with valentine i don't even know if that was legit or not but that's uh that's dedication oh yeah i got to meet piper at a comic-con and yes i'm gonna fully you know nerd out here i was at a comic-con in detroit and i met piper it was not long before he passed away so this was and after so, you left WWE. Yeah. Oh, this is long after I left. This is okay. only like, this is like four or five years ago. And so I, I had my two sons with me and I brought them up and I, I, I boosted them up the hallway to how they're meeting one of the all time absolute greatest entertainers ever in any medium is how great Roddy Piper was. And we get up there and one, I'm surprised at how small he was, not small, but short. Yes. I think he's kind of shrunk down a little bit by that point. He was kind of hunched. Yeah, a little hunched. Yeah. But he was, I mean, he was so nice to the kids. And it was just, with him, it's all about, you know, if you guys watch it together as a family, it makes me so happy to hear that. If you guys, you know, if you're good to your dad and you listen to your dad, and if your dad, if you're good to them, that's such an important thing. Uh, and I mean, you know, this is supposed to be like a, you know, a five second. You know how the comic cons work it's a it's a cattle shoot C- click the photo right. and move click the photo and move his line was twice as long as anyone and it was probably long because he was talking to everybody and who's going to tell him not to really i mean who's going to say shut up roddy piper right yeah. you let you let him do what he wants i i had the 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 good fortune of of interacting with him when he came back to mm-hmm. wwe which for his last run there which was like 2000 six and seven i actually think he might have come back again after that but but it was right around the time he had a hip replacement and he just really couldn't wrestle anymore he was tag teaming with rick flair oh i remember that he was uh, so nice i was not prepared for just how unassuming and down to earth i remember when i found out that he was going in for hip surgery i had his phone number from when we did the photo shoot and i just called him you know to wish him good luck. He didn't, it went to voicemail. I left him mm-hmm. a message. I forgot about it completely. Yeah. A couple of days later, I come home and my wife is like, have you played the answering machine? I said, no, why what's on it? She goes, Rowdy Roddy Piper called up to wish us a Merry <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> and she played it back in the days of answering machines. Remember those? She played yeah. the answering machine and sure enough, it's Roddy Piper. Yeah. Just want to wish you know, very quiet voice. You and yeah. your family a Merry Christmas, Brian. Thank you for for calling and wishing me good luck. The surgery went well, and I'll be back on my feet. And I, I wish I had kept that tape. I really did. I don't know what happened to it, but I mean, it was a low talker. Who would have done that? You know, but no. I mean, Hogan wouldn't have done that, right? <laughs> hey, brother. <laughs> did you have yeah. any interaction with Hogan? Yeah, I did when they when they brought the NWO back. Right. Um. Did had some interactions with Hogan. And what the thing that shocked me about Hogan was that that he's a low talker. Yeah, I guess he is. Isn't he's a low talker. And the thing that amazes me is how that, that red light goes on that camera and he just becomes Hogan. 
and it turns off and it's just like, oh, he's tired. Yes, I remember Aaron, Aaron called him uh, at in that era. He, he used to always compare him to Babe Ruth on the Boston Braves. Like yeah. just that, that kind of like at the end of the run, the gas is out of the tank. And, but he's still got a little bit of the magic and you still catch glimpses of it. Like I remember um, we did, uh, you know, he had to do a whole new set of like eight by tens and publicity shots because now he was back in the red and yellow again. And you remember oh my that? God, do you remember that mania when it was, it was the mania with the rock and right. all of a sudden we're getting these frantic, you know, inside phone calls that Hogan's turning babyface and he's going to be black, red and gold again. Right. And we had that information first. That was cool. I was, I was, um, we did that special magazine with him. It was a special issue, all Hogan. You went down for that one. Right. right? Because that was my first magazine that I got to run. It was my first one that I managed. It was the yep. Hulkamania special issue. We went down to Florida. I went to his house, the whole thing. But they also had to do publicity shots for him, new ones at whatever the next TV was. They were like frantic to get new publicity shots of him in his in his red and Montreal. Yellow. Yeah, and I, 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 were you there for that? Because I remember no. we we got into a room. I think Barry might have been there, and it was at that point. It was um, I think it was John Giamundo, Johnny Photo that was yep. doing it. And there were, it was me and I'm standing there and Hogan came in and all of a sudden, like you said, he just turned it on and they're doing these shots and he's striking all the poses and he's going into character and I'm standing off to the side and a few other people and we're just watching kind of in awe. Yeah. And then he kind of noticed that people were watching and he started to get very self-conscious. And I remember he said something, it was this very subtle thing, but we knew he just goes, you know, I remember, brother, uh, back when I used to do these, you know, publicity shots back in the day, it would just be me and Steve Taylor in a room alone. And we all just kind of like skulked quietly out of the room because he wanted his privacy to, to, to get into the zone, you know, a little bit between the lines. Yeah, right. I, I that mania was amazing because. I mean, how they just, I don't know if that was the plan or not. You have to think that, I know they changed a bunch of shit just based on the fan reaction at Skydome. Yeah, and uh, I mean, he told me that there was even a consideration of just having him come out in the red and yellow because they just knew it was going to be a foregone conclusion that the crowd was going to be on his side because it was Toronto and the Skydome yep. and everything. And I remember he said that, like the day before, and again, I mean, it's Hogan. You never know with these stories, but he said like a day or two before they sent him home. They sent him back to get all of his red and yellow gear just in case they decided to do that. Now, I heard that, too. Yeah, I heard that, too. But I the way I heard it was that they decided to do it, basically, that they didn't send him home. They sent, you know, they had his whoever was, you know, his, his wife at the time or whoever send his gear ahead to Montreal, because by the time the Toronto, event happened, Toronto. no, to Montreal for Raw the next night. Oh, right, they, right, right, right. Because they knew that at, by the time they got to the main event, they knew, like, okay, this is happening. Right, right. What I remember more than anything from you going down for the Hogan issue was how you said when you got down there, it was like, was it like Jerry Sags and, and yes. Beefcake and like the, the, the guys you would associate immediately with Hogan were all just kind of hanging around. Yes, it was exactly what you would imagine. It was it was Brian Knobs, 
Brutus Beefcake, and Sponge Damore himself, Bubba the Love Sponge. <laughs> and then you hear the thing bits that happens with Hogan and Bubba, and it's just like, ew. I know. We didn't know anything about that. I was there for that. that. <laughs> but, but, right. I didn't know anything about that. But it was weird because uh, they treated him like this was at the time of The Sopranos, like was in full swing. Yeah, and, yeah. And it was like they were like his crew. Like they called him T because, of course, Terry Balea. Sure. They kept calling him T, like T, T. What do you want us to do, T? You know, they were clearly <laughs> aping the Sopranos, and he's just ordering around Brian Knobs and Bubba the Love Sponge and Brutus Beefcake. Like they're Beefcake. just cake. They're just his minions. And I remember with Beefcake because we got to go to uh, um, Hogan's wife Linda had a restaurant on Clearwater, on the water there or whatever. And mm-hmm. we got invited to go. And by the way, they made us pay for everything, which we weren't expecting. <laughs> we thought we were going to get comped, but we got a bill. It was me and I think Tracy, Tracy Thomas, our, yep. our designer. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to remember who else was there. I definitely remember Tracy. Got to be one of the photogs. Brooke Either Hogan. Or... Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it was oh, Rich Frida or Johnny. I'm Foda. trying to remember who shot that stuff. They're going to kill me if they hear this. It might have been Craig Ambrosio. I don't remember who shot it, but whoever it was was there. And yeah. I remember Brooke Hogan was actually like greeting us at the door of the restaurant. She was like the whatever they call that, like the the the, the major the, D, the major D. And and at that point, she would have been like maybe fifteen. Oh 14. man, yeah, like fourteen years old or something. Because she's but like she's eight, like six two. Yeah, yeah, she's like eight feet tall. You know. But uh, but yeah, I remember we got to the restaurant and Beefcake is just like wandering aimlessly. Like you could tell, like he just doesn't know what to do with himself, but he just wants to be there. And he is he putting butter on your plate. <laughs> I took a picture with oh God, I took a picture with him. Oh, I feel bad saying this, but he's not listening to this. I took a picture because I felt bad for him. It was like he looked like he was going to be let down if I didn't take a picture with him. So I did. So I, I have it somewhere. But, but oh that was a God, crazy trip. So amazing. I was so glad, though, that I got to do that because that was like that was the first magazine I got to really do myself. There was another crazy story that happened on, on that trip, which is where where his son, Nick, was even younger. So actually, I think yeah, Brooke was like 14 and Nick was like 12. And I remember we were doing these shoot these these shots with Hogan and all of his cars because he had this like gigantic garage with all these sports cars I remember that in the midst of all the sports cars there was this very normal regular kind of car I forget what it was now it might have just been like a Toyota or just something really normal and I said to him Hulk why do you why do you have just have this Toyota in the middle of all these Corvettes and Porsches and and he goes well that's Nick's car brother that car's for Nick uh, and I said, well, you know, Nick is 12. And he, <laughs> he, goes, he goes, yeah, uh, well, you know, uh, ask his mother about that. You know, she made me get that for him. And he's 12 years old. I know. And I said, well, I guess it's good in a way, because when he's ready to drive, he's going to have a, the car will be waiting for him. And he goes, oh, he'll have another one by that time, brother. Oh, my God. You know, and, and as a comparison, when I went down to San Antonio to do the Austin thing, you know, Austin at that point is living down there. He's got you know, a re- a nice house, but it's modest. He's a guy who lived really beneath his, his means. You could tell he was a guy who knew the value of a buck because his house, like I said, was very, very nice, but it was nothing ostentatious at all. And he had a, just a pick, 
pickup truck, a nice pickup truck, but something, you know, that you or I could easily own. And then he had this shitbox Jeep that didn't even have plates on it. That was just to drive around his property, which was expansive. And at that point, he owned a bunch of exotic animals. Wow. Didn't know and that. And just, yeah, he, he had a bunch of exotics that lived. He had a lot of acreage down there. And he put us in the Jeep and he drove us around and, you know, check out all the animals and stuff. And, but I mean, there's a guy who lived really, I mean, this is at the height of his, his thing too. And he lived really modestly. And I was just like, okay, that's cool. That's very cool. I also remember how <laughs> basically the only shirts he ever wore were free t-shirts that he would get from various like events and functions and things. So like, you know, pay-per-view shirts and crew oh, shirts. Yeah, his own merch. And That's all he ever wore was like his own yeah. merch and t-shirts. And either jean shorts or jeans and pair of boots, jacket. I was surprised how cold San Antonio was at that time of year. Froze my ass off and a hat. I mean, the most normal, you know, when, when Austin always said, you know, Stone Cold Steve Austin is just me with the volume turned up. And he was so right. Yeah. Yeah. He was which so was, right. Which was what he never got to do before, you know, because I mean, he was always great. Even in WCW, I thought he was great, even though yeah. he wasn't a main eventer there. And, you know, but but I mean, for what he did, he was always, for me, one of the highlights of the show. But he wasn't really getting to be himself yet, you know? Right. Well, I, I loved the book that he did. Was that with Dennis Brent? Yes. Um I think it, it was with JR. And well, Dennis. it was JR. There were various levels of ghostwriting on that book. Yes. So you had like JR. You had it, it. So it's Stone Cold's autobiography. JR is the official ghostwriter. And then that's Dennis, told to Dennis Brent. Right. Dennis Brent is like the actual ghostwriter. Yeah. It was, it was wild. Yeah. There are, there are a lot of levels on that. And I remember I just got like a little side gig. You know, I made a couple of side bucks lit going through the tape and doing transcriptions for Dennis. I did too. I think Aaron did. I think they had all three of us do it. Yeah, they right? did. And that was so much fun to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. It was Just like the way that he, you know, he came out of nothing. And, uh, and then when I did the bit with him, when, you know, after he did the comeback, when, you know, when he, after he took his ball and went home or whatever, and he came back and he went into this long bit about how, you know, he still hates how they write scripts for guys, um, how they, you know, the way you used to do it then was you take two guys and, you know, it's like, all right, you're going to work with, you're going to work with him. You're going over. I'm the agent. You guys come up with it. Then I'll help you do a finish. And you walk yeah. away and then you come up with ideas and then, or you're going to do an interview and it's like, all right, well, just talk, you know, mention A, B, and C, but, that, but aside from that, just riff. And he, he said, he goes, that's how you get your scholarship. And the guys who were coming up at the time, this is right when Dave Batista was just coming up. It was right when John Cena was just coming up and Lesnar was, remember the whole reason he left and took his ball and went home was that they were going to have Lesnar go over him. Right. Like on a raw. Right. And he was like, you know, I got no problem doing a job for Lesnar, but I'm the last guy. I'm not the guy on the path. I'm not a right. stepping stone. I am the last guy. When it comes, when he comes to the end of it and he has to go over somebody, it's me. And I'm happy to do it then, but when it's time. Yeah, I think they were using him to like build to, I don't know, maybe Hogan or something ridiculous. Like Hogan that. or it was either Hogan or Triple H. Yeah, right. Maybe Triple H or Undertaker. I don't know something. I don't know who it was, but and he was saying how he's like, these guys coming up, they're really talented and stuff. But he was like, these guys are green as anything because they haven't gone through that process. He's, and the problem is no one goes through that process anymore. He talks about that 20 years ago. Yeah. And he still talks about it on his show on the broken skull sessions. And when he, when, yeah, he, 
he's always talking about that, how um, it's overly scripted and guys yeah. are just not prepared to go extemporaneously. And I guess part of that is, you know, everything became about the ratings and about micromanaging every little segment of the show. And mm-hmm. when, when it, when it gets to that point, they just don't trust the guys to be able to carry it in that way. You know, when you're doing right. WWF superstars and it's just basically an infomercial and, you know, not a lot of, you know, you don't care about your ratings. You could let somebody just go off a little bit. I mean, sure. Devil's advocate. I, I think that's kind of why it changed, but it is a shame because some of those skills are gone, but you mentioned Cena in there. And I remember, you know, because you, you left before Cena really became, the huge Cena. megastar John Cena, like the face of the company. But you were there when he was, you know, in OVW or even in yep. UPW. And when he was the, you know, the prototype and we were hearing talk about him and then yep. they brought him up and he was just starting with. Uh, he was the, the rapper, doctor, right? The doctor of thugonomics. And when he had yep. B squared with him and everything. But one thing I remember that I, I never forget is the first impression when I talked to you about him, because you actually got to interview him mm-hmm. at the very beginning and yeah. you were, and you were going on and on about how funny he was. Do you remember that? Of just what he was a, hilarious, like a disarmingly funny guy. He was, yes, he was hilarious. Cause I got to do, it was a, you know, I think we did the thugonomics story too, for dub for the kayfabe bag, but I also did the raw interview with him and it was, he was hilarious. He was so funny. Like the, the whole, like the whole first story he told was how he went to a private school and not out of, you know, you know, wealth or anything, but because he was a fuck up as a kid or he was a discipline problem. So they sent him to like a military school. And he said, one of the first things he did was he showed up and they had someone had like a, a construction helmet that had like a siren on it. It was just something they had made, you know, with the, like the rotating police siren. And he showed up and he knocked on whatever the military school equivalent of the RA is. He went and knocked on his door. And he was wearing that and absolutely nothing else. He was stark nude. And he said, the guy opens up and the guy's got his girlfriend in there. He's like, oh, hi. But he said, he's like, yeah, it's just something I used to do a lot when I was young was I would just get naked as a joke. And he was just, just talking about this to, you know, a house organ, you know, like a, you know, a, a company magazine. Oh, I know. He would, he would sometimes say crazy stuff like that, which is why yeah. I guess. You know, his current career now and him doing like the peace, was it Peacemaker and that Peacemaker and that show is so good. Right. And it's no surprise how funny he is. And you want to talk about improvising. I mean, there's some outtakes of things that are even funnier than what's actually on the show that they've had him do on there. And you ever notice that he's never the one who breaks. Right. He never breaks, but he breaks everyone. Right. And I remember like even years later, he was still when even when he was a huge star, the things that he would say in some interviews would be we'd be like are you sure you want us to 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 run this you know like yeah like I, I remember <laughs> i'm gonna try my best to keep this as clean as i can but i remember <laughs> in the later incarnation of wwe magazine when we were the men's lifestyle like maxim magazine style of wwe magazine yep in my final years there um he we did an interview with him where we were talking about personal grooming and he said something to the effect of, you know, oh, uh, of, of how, you know, he's he's all completely shaven, you know, clean in certain areas. And he goes, you would be surprised. I, I forget the exact quote. I got to find it. He goes, you'd be surprised at what a woman is willing to do 
when she sees that you have nothing that that, that you're totally clean shaven and he wasn't talking about his face let's just no <laughs> and i'm going this is john cena this is the hero of children everywhere this is the all-time make-a-wish champion right of the world and it's there in black and white in print and i have to try and find it it's in one of the the issues of wwe magazine where he says that just mind-blowing but you know. i oh my god i would have loved that but yeah he's you could tell even at the very beginning when he first came up from OVW that he was just such a confident guy. And yes, he was an extremely confident guy and he was just really likable. It's like, okay, I think he's going to go somewhere. Yeah. You could just tell that there was something going on there and, and um, that he was going to be, you know, the next big thing for sure. But I wanted to ask too, and b- especially before I run out of time, because I don't want to mm-hmm. take up your whole evening here, but We've talked so much about WWF and you you grew up in the same yeah. relative area I did. But I also remember that you, like me, were obsessed with Ric Flair and the Four uh-huh. Horsemen. So how did you get into that stuff? Did you have cable as a kid yep. or was got that cable, it? Got cable in about third or fourth grade for me. So that'd be about who, 78, 77, 78. So were you watching like Georgia Championship Wrestling on TBS? Yes. Oh, my God. I'm so jealous. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was seeing that stuff very early on, and then it, it got bigger for me when I went to college, and a bunch of the guys on my floor were like, "Oh, WWF! No one need to watch that shit. We 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 all watch, you know, we watch NWA, right? And that's the real stuff. Remember that they would say that that th- those guys are real. That's not yeah, for kids. It, that's not for kids. That, that that's that's real wrestling. They're really doing. It. They're that's the that's not the fake wrestling, right? Like, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. So I was a I was a huge flare mark. Still yeah. am. Yeah. But I was a massive flair, Mark. I mean, of all the times we did interviews and stuff, I think possibly Flair is still the only guy I got my picture taken with. And Johnny Photo gave me so much shit for that and called me a mark and everything else. And it's like, yeah, you know what? Absolutely true. I copped to that a thousand percent. I am a thousand percent a mark for Ric Flair. Yeah, and 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 I know I remember I think you showed me that picture where aren't you're both doing the four yes. horsemen symbol, right? Yes. And it's funny you say that because he also I, I did the same thing, you know, you didn't want to take a ton of pictures with people, it just looks no. bad. And I I have a picture with him that's it's very candid though. It's where I'm interviewing him and somebody snapped it and it's not it's not really it's not that kind of picture, but he's one of the only people that I I had to ask for an autograph and I felt like such an idiot weirdo, but I was like, <laughs> screw it. Like, just screw it. I'm going to do it. And, you know, the moment was right. We were having yeah. just a casual conversation. And I'm like, by the way, here's this eight by 10. I'm just randomly pulling out. And but but he was in such a good mood and the conversation was so was going so well that he signed it for me and I still have it. It's one of the only times I ever had anyone do that. Maybe the only time. I, I, I never got an autograph, but I take it back. I had one other picture taken. Trish Stratus. <laughs> okay. Different reason. Uh, yeah. Completely different reason. <laughs> I remember her from her first day when she came in to sign her contract in the building. It was one oh of my, my first days there. I, I started in February, 2000 and I had been reading on the web because she was kind of known as a fitness model and yeah. And I knew, you know, what she looked like and how gorgeous she was and everything. And I remember reading on the Internet, oh, she's coming in to uh, Stanford to officially sign her contract. And I actually happened to see her walking around on, you know, because we were on the, f- the second floor at that time. 
And I think so. They wanted to take her and show her like the photo department and things like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was one of my early, early starstruck moments. I remember I, I, I pointed her. We had a really great conversation in which she asked me where the ladies room was. And, <laughs> and I pointed her in the in the right direction. That was about it. <laughs> when we were on the same floor and we were in the same department as, as Shane, you would occasionally see people like talent coming into Cub and, and say hello. And yes. it was kind of like those, those old sports center commercials. Like you'd be I'd be coming back from like lunch and have like a tray in my hand with a sandwich on it and come by, you know, there's big show walking by. Right. Like, oh, hey, show or, you know, Triple H comes walking by. It was, it was like the ones I was waiting for, like Mr. Met to come walking in. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one time. Do you remember the great collie? Were you there for him? No, I missed the great collie. Okay. But you know who I mean, right? Sure. I, yeah. Okay. And he was like, Easily over seven, seven feet tall. Yeah, seven something. And he was one that they did that with. I remember being at my cubicle and I think Dr. Tom was like giving him the tour and we're all sitting at our cubicles and his head is above the cubicle walls. Like you, you don't even have to be standing up to see him. And I'm like, who the hell is this guy? Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean. I, I remember doing an interview with, oh, we could do this all night. I, I know. With, um, Sorry, Mike. <laughs> show was great to talk to. Like, he I, was. We, yeah, he was. Show was amazing to talk to. If you got and him they, in the right mood, sometimes he could be a little, uh, you that know. That was true of all of them. And I never yeah. got, I never got him in a bad mood. He loved me because we would talk about Sinatra and Dean Martin, who he loved. So he would I love knew he was a big Rat Pack guy. Yes, yes. But I remember he, he, they were doing the handprint thing with him. I think they're doing merch with the handprint, like, you know, kind of like the Andre handprint. Yeah. And we were doing that. And so they were actually, you know, painting up his hand and stuff. And I mean, he had to like take off. He had a watch and a couple of rings and a bracelet. And he handed them to me. And I remember looking at his ring. I'm like, you could put an egg through this thing. <laughs> and I put it, I actually put his watch on. And I'm like, I mean, it's down to like, I mean, it, I'm, you can't see it, but it, it is just dangling. Uh, not, that, like, not that I have arms like Popeye or anything, but his watch is absolutely dangling off of me. So I got to put that on when we when we had um Steiner Scott Steiner and later I actually got to put the chainmail hat on. Oh God, that thing weighs a lot. I remember we almost did a cover thing with Big Show where, um, do you remember how next to Titan Tower there used to be that car dealership that had those really tiny European cars? I forget yes. what they were. They um, were really they were Fiat's, tiny. I think. Yeah, maybe. And we wanted to do a shoot of him like standing next to that car, you know, trying to get into the car. And I remember we were even going to have um, like I was going to my daughter at that time was maybe like one or two years old and she was in Titan Tots daycare mm-hmm. and we were going to bring her over and have him like holding her like this little tiny creature and it's almost like Frankenstein. You know, we had all these <laughs> concepts and ideas. Uh, but Just don't toss never, her in the water. It never happened. I think that was the one where, oh my gosh, I think that was the one where we wound up instead doing, we recreated the Napolitano photo where he had the women on his arms, like the Andre the Giant yes. photo. Yes. We wound up doing that instead, but we were going to like, we had all these ideas of how to make him look even bigger than he was. Your daughter and my daughter are the same age. And yes. I still somewhere in this house have the picture of her as a baby at the tower for thanks for Christmas being held by Santa Claus, who was Fred Blassie. I wish. I, I wish I think I, I've told this story, but, you know, Blassie used to do Santa Claus at the Christmas party and mm-hmm. he used to he used to visit the daycare center as Santa Claus. So I yes. had my daughter, Layla, who when I first started working there, well, she wasn't born yet. But right. Um, I remember in 2002, she was like a year old 
I was going to bring her. I think it was. Yeah, I was going to bring, you know, I was so excited because it was like the day that Blassie was coming in in his Santa costume and he was going to take pictures and everything. And Layla had an ear infection. She couldn't go in. Oh, yeah. And I I was like, oh, God damn it. And then I'm like, I guess we'll just have to do it next year. And of course, died. He died. Yeah. So we never got to do it. But I remember Miyako, his widow. She mm-hmm. loved Layla. She used to see her sometimes in the office and and at Chris at the Christmas party. I remember I, I don't have a picture, but I remember there was a Christmas party where she's she was sitting on Miyako Blassi, who was already widowed by that point, sitting on her lap for most of the party, just kind of chilling, just hanging out. Nice. Those are the strange experiences that you have from working at WWE. I mean, they just happen like running away and joining the circus. It is. And and I do. I mean, I, I know I promised you an hour and I'm going to try. I'm holding to it. It's been slightly okay. over that. We oh, can, I'm fine. I mean, I, I would have you again in a heartbeat for sure, just because we're scratching the surface here. But mm-hmm. I'm not going to let you escape here before you have to do a little Lord Alfred Hayes for me. Could you please? Or are you that out of practice? No, I, well, I am out of practice, so it's probably going to suck. But what was the name of the cologne? Stetson. Stetson. <laughs> it was Stetson. Uh, promotional considerations paid for by Stetson Cologne. Oh, God, what the hell was the catchphrase? Use it. it for, wear it before you stalk. Right. <laughs> and I remember also, Mr. Freeze, freezer bars. <laughs> They're as fun to freeze as they are to eat. People's, I, you know, I went down a, a Lord Al rabbit hole on YouTube one time, and I found him when he was a heel manager down south. Uh-huh. And he was so great. Oh, yeah. He he did that in, in Mid-Atlantic and Georgia. Yeah. He, they would basically send him to all these kind of like hick areas where they're going to immediately hate the British oh. aristocrat. And he would yeah. just act like he was better than everybody. Yeah. The tea in this country is reprehensible. What about the Piper? Remember the, the on, on TNT? Or what did he say to Piper? You, you bring no dignity to this program. Right. That's absolutely. A, you're absolutely without dignity. And I think then Piper just slapped him in the face. Right. Yeah, oh, Piper knocked the snot out of him. Right. See, it God, was... I that I remember that that party when when you left. And of course, you know, we had all had a few beers in us at that point. There were some adult beverages. And it that. was I mean, I won't have you do all this because we'll get my podcast. We get kicked off the air. But there were like we, nine Lord Alfreds going. We were time. doing Lord Alfred and Jr. You remember that? It was like dueling Lord Alfreds and yes. JRs. <laughs> we had Lord Alfreds. We had JRs. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, God. Like we had JR commentating a bowel movement. Um. <laughs> I actually wrote, you know, one time I actually decided to send a storyline idea upstairs yes. and I emailed it to Stephanie and the entire idea. And I still wish they had done this. And, you know, who knows? It's too late because Vince, you know, notoriously loves toilet humor. Yes. As, as, as I do. And the, the entire thing was supposed to be how somebody, and I think the baby face at the time was Edge, was going to slip Vince a laxative. And, and then it was going to culminate with a match between Edge and Kurt Angle. And, you know, Vince was set up to interfere in it. But the entire time, Vince is stuck in the bathroom because he can't stop shitting because he's been given this incredibly world-class laxative by Edge. And at first, it's Vince in the stall, and he's doing old-school babyface Vince, and he's commentating his own movement. And 
Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, my. Come on. And he's just blasting away and commentating. And then he realizes he can't stop. And so he's sending Angle out to, like, bring him, like, bananas and bran and stuff. And, like, Angle's coming into the bathroom with one of those huge, like, Three Stooges um, clothespins on his nose because it smells so bad in there. I went on, and I, I mean, it was it was much better formed twenty years ago. And I actually sent this to Stephanie. Did she did she respond? She did. She responded and said, "Please don't send this to Vince because he will love it." <laughs> <laughs> right. If you had sent it straight to him, they probably would it was have on done TV it. that night. It was on don't, TV. Do you remember? Did, did you ever night. hear the story about when he when he crapped himself on the air on television? Yes, and he came backstage and laughed about it for like an hour. Right, he was cutting a promo, and in the and ring, he cut something was, else. It was a very forceful promo, and just a little tiny nugget just kind of rolled down the inside of his pant leg onto the yeah. canvas. And right, you're right. He came back and he was bragging about it to everybody. He thought it was the funniest thing ever. So you're right. He probably she was right. That probably would have wound up on television if he ever I, had seen it. it. It spared Kurt Angle a great indignity. <laughs> he would have been a man without dignity like Roddy Piper. Yes. I bring absolutely no dignity <laughs> to this program. Well, um, I, I, I think, I don't think we're going to top that, you know, unless, uh, you know, obviously uh, we could just do Lord Alfred Hayes and Vince and Jr. into the wee <laughs> hours, but, but I'm going to save it. Cause you know, you got to keep them wanting more. So we'll, we'll, I'll have to have you back and we'll, we'll do more of this, of these shenanigans, but I send, can't thank send them home enough. wanting more. Exactly. Wanting more oh. Vince crapping himself stories and, you know, Lord Al selling cologne and freezer bars. <laughs> and ice cream bars. Right. WWF ice cream bars. Yes. That poor man. God. Well, Faz, this has been a delight. I can't thank I, you enough. I will do this as many times as you ask. Oh, I'm very glad to hear that. Thank I'll you. be like the George Goble to your Carson. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Wonderful. <laughs> As long as I, well, as long as you're not the, uh, the, the, uh, oh, who was the guy that was always drunk? His whole routine was being drunk all the time. Foster Brooks. Foster Brooks. Right. Yeah. Maybe he could be the Foster Brooks because he would come on the Tonight Show in character doing that too. I think if I remember right. Yes, he did. Oh, man. He's probably like Dean Martin. He was probably drinking apple juice the whole time. Well, I hope so. I don't think any human being could ever spend that much time that drunk and still be alive. So that is See, true that's another thing people will get from this show now they're going to be looking up foster brooks clips on youtube but anyway all right and lord alfred hayes i hope yes preferably together that'd be great okay <laughs> somebody stop us this has we have to bring this to an end now thank you faz this has been miraculous my pleasure i will do it anytime Brian. there you have it folks my conversation catching up with my old pal Faz, Mike Fazioli. I hope you like that. I remember how much everybody really was into the Deborah Jazzway interview when I talked to her about cre you know creative services at WWE. And here we are talking about the publications department at WWE. Um, I certainly had a blast doing it. And I promise to continue to do more of those inside the tower uh, conversations in episodes to come. I know how much people enjoy them, uh, but I do want to mention that next week, my guest is going to be uh, another fellow author, fellow wrestling author. Um, he is the uh, author of the book Shooters about some of wrestling's legit tough guys. He wrote 
the recent Ken Shamrock biography. He's written for Bleacher Report, and he's working on an upcoming independent biography of the American dream, Dusty Rhodes. I'm talking about Jonathan Snowden. Jonathan Snowden will be here on Shut Up and Wrestle on our next episode. Also, on a future episode, I have saved for you guys another PWI legend. Mr. Craig Peters is on the way. If you just keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle, and where can you find it? Well, I'm glad that you asked because you can find Shut Up and Wrestle wherever you get your uh, favorite podcasts, be it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, or wherever it is. And of course, the website is suawpod.com. And as I've mentioned before, we also now have a Facebook group. So if you want to join the Shut Up and Wrestle conversation on Facebook, just look up Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon, and you will find it. And if you want to find the articles that I write and the magazines I write for, of course, the granddaddy of all wrestling publications, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, you can buy digital or print copies at pwi-online.com. And Inside the Ropes magazine, if you want to buy some copies of that one, just go to insidetheropesmagazine.com. And if you're looking for me on social media, I can be found on Twitter or Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. If you go to Facebook, you can find my author page there under Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those platforms, you will also find the link to my official author web page. So as always, this has been Brian Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that old age is the only disease that nobody looks forward to being cured of. So long, wrestling fans. 